When Jesus was about to be crucified, they went into the temple for one last time, he and the disciples. And they're in this glorious, beautiful temple, spectacular, one of the wonders, eight wonders of the world, one of the many wonders of the world. And as they were leaving, the disciples were bragging about it. And they were saying, did you see that, Lord? Can you believe the beauty of that architecture? Can you believe this thing? And Jesus looked at them and said something that just rocked their world, shocked them. He said, I'm telling you, the day is coming that not one stone is going to be left standing on another. And so they thought about it. They walked away. They went to the Mount of Olives. They sat down on the Mount of Olives. It's Wednesday night. Jesus is crucified on Friday. And so they say to him, now, Lord, when will these things be? Talking about the destruction of the temple. When will these things be? And while we're at it, Lord, what will be the sign of your return and of the end of the age? And he gave them almost a full chapter, most of Matthew 24. Jesus launches into a bunch of signs to look for that would precede his return. He never denied that he would not return. He totally agreed with the question and answered it. But then, after he was done giving signs, he gave them three parables. Now, a parable is a story that Jesus would make up to teach lessons. And he was a master at it. Now, those three parables I want to deal with in the next three weeks because every one of them has to do with being ready for his return. Now, let's read... We're going to read one of those parables, starting at Matthew 24, verse 42. Now, Jesus is ending, giving all the signs by this. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also, what everybody, be ready. This was the gist of every one of the three parables. Watch and be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you don't expect. Now here comes the first parable. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware of. Now it gets really rough. Verse 51, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. It's true. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this parable, for you have given to us a lesson to learn. Lord, I pray that you will help us to have our faith sharpened today so that we are as those who are always looking and expecting the return of our Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you're coming soon. Help us to be ready. Now, would you breathe a prayer and just say, Lord, I receive your word. Speak to my heart today. In Jesus' name, amen. Tell your neighbor, Jesus is coming soon. Amen. Now, we have spent four weeks 
uh, going over the signs, going over Matthew 24. And we've dealt with many things. But when Jesus was done giving the signs, as I said, he gave three parables. Now, let me tell you what the parables are about. Because every one of the parables is designed to make us ready in a particular way. They're all different. First, there is the faithful and the evil servant. And that's the parable we just read and I'm going to talk about today. And this one has to do with being ready with your faith, ready in your faith, that your faith is ready and expecting the coming of the Lord. The second parable we all know about, the parable of the ten virgins. That one has to do with being ready in your walk. And then the third one is the parable of the talents, and that one has to do with being ready in your works. So Jesus gave three parables. He said, I want you to be ready in your faith. I want you to be ready in your walk with me, and I want you to be ready in your works, what you're doing for him, unto him, before he returns. All of these are going to be rich. Don't miss them. They are rich. Now, today, we're looking at the first parable. Jesus was a master storyteller. He always told a story, a parable, with a lesson in in mind, and there's really three key parts to the parable of the faithful and the evil servant. The first one is a house owner who goes on a long journey. There's a house owner who says, I'm going away and I'm going on a long journey. Then the second component of this parable is a servant who he leaves in charge of the house with a task in mind. He leaves him with a task. He says, I'm going away. I'm leaving you in charge And here's what I want you to do. The third part is the servant's fatal thought. I'm going to show you at the end of this message that one thought can change your life. One thought. One thought can change your whole life. The direction you go, your destiny, your future. One thought. And this servant in Jesus' parable has a fatal thought. I call it a fatal thought because it was really a turning point for him from which he never recovered. A fatal thought. Now, let me tell you who they, these different players symbolize. The house owner in the parable is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ himself who gave his blood for his church. So the house owner who goes away on a long journey is Jesus painting a picture of himself. He went away on a long journey. The house in the parable is the church and everybody in the church. Because you know the church is not a building, it's people. The church is not a structure. It is a living organism comprised of people. I'm looking at the real church. Amen? So the house in the parable is the church which he purchased with his blood. The servant in the parable is you and me. It's all Christians. All of us. We're the servant in the parable. And we have been entrusted to carry on in his name while he's gone until he returns. And I want you to notice that he said, I want you to minister to one another. And here's how he explained or described ministering to one another. He said, those that are in the house are to give each other food in due season. Now that is a powerful truth that I'm going to expand on in just a moment. But I want you to notice the task he left them with He said, all right, I'm leaving you in charge of the house. The house is the church. You're waiting for me to return. And what I want you to do is minister to one another, feed one another, spiritually speaking. 
I want you to feed one another in due season. So I like to put it this way. We are called to one another, one another. Amen? We're called to one another, one another. Now, the fatal thought that the servant has represents any believer who in unbelief loses faith in the return of Jesus Christ. They're in the house. They are of the house. But somewhere along the way, they have a thought. And the thought is, you know, I don't know about this Jesus returning stuff. And I don't know that he's going to return. And, and the Bible, Jesus himself says when he thought that thought, it changed the direction of his whole life. And I'm going to show you how it changed it in a moment. So the gist of the parable is Jesus is the homeowner. He has gone away on a long journey. One day he's going to return. And until he returns, you and I, his church, are called, among other things, to minister to one another. And I'm going to show you now what God intended with the local church. Everybody say, I'm in a local church here. Right? Now, now, like I said, it's not a structure. It's a living organism. It is a living, breathing thing. A church is like a great big family, or really, in some ways, it's like a great big person. A church. It's, it's alive. It's comprised of people that have been born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, who have been given life, who have been delivered from death, delivered from hell, delivered from the grave, who have come into contact with the living God. We are now the redeemed, blood-bought church of God. And, and so there is a calling on us. So I want to look first at the servant's task. What did the master of the house leave him to do? Because what he left him to do, he's left us to do. Jesus said, Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household, to give them food in due season? Now this points to the calling that God has placed on every single solitary Christian. If you're saved today, if you believe you're going to heaven today, I'm about to show you a great big slice of what God has called you to do. Amen? Regularly feeding the other members of the household, the church. It's interesting to me that when the master returns in the parable, the first thing he wants to know is, how did you one another one another? How did you treat each other? How, how did you treat other members of the household of God? How did you do one another? Did you bless them? Did you encourage them? Did you edify them? Minister to them? Uh, did, did you strengthen them? Did, did, did you stir them up to good works? Did, did you, were you a blessing? Did you reflect Jesus to them? Now, Jesus' words, I want you to feed one another in due season, they echo exactly what the rest of the New Testament says about the local church and the way that God designed the local church. Now, I have pastored 35 years. I can't believe it when I say it. <clears throat> but I have pastored 35 years. And let me tell you something. I've noticed most Christians don't really understand how God designed the local church. Now, it's not their fault. It's because pulpits haven't taught how God designed the local church. So I hope to show you today how God put together and why he put together the local church. It's more important than you might imagine. Let me show you how most Christians view local church. Most Christians see their church as a place where they come to be fed, for their own needs to be met, and it stops there. Feed me, lead me, bless me, leave me. I'm going home. 
That's the way they view church. What I've noticed is we've developed a consumer mentality about church, sort of like eating at a restaurant, you know? We go to church like we go to a restaurant to be waited on and fed. When I go to a restaurant today, well, usually today I don't get to. I'm going to eat at home. But I love to go to restaurants and eat. When I go, I expect to be waited on and I expect to be fed and I expect it to end there. But that's the way we see church. And church is not that way. We don't view it the way that Jesus describes it in the parable where each member is not just receiving but also giving out, giving one another food in due season. See, we're to take blessing in and then we're to give blessing out. Now, did you know there's the Sea of Galilee and there's the Dead Sea? The Sea of Galilee is alive. I've been on it. I've been out in it. It's beautiful. It, it, it's just, it's so moving to go there and be there. Maybe we'll do an Israel trip someday, but I've been there. And here's the thing about the Sea of Galilee. Water flows into it from the River Jordan on the north side, and then it flows out back into the Jordan on the south side. So the Sea of Galilee takes water in, and the Sea of Galilee then gives it back out. It takes in, it gives out. It takes in, it gives out. Therefore, it is alive. But the Dead Sea is dead for this reason. The Dead Sea is also fed by the Jordan River. And the water comes in, but it doesn't give it back out. It takes and takes and takes, but it gives nothing back. And so therefore, it is dead. See? You with me? Now, here's the deal. You can either be a Sea of Galilee or you can be a Dead Sea. If you take in and you don't give out, you're not going to be near as blessed, near as alive, near a flowing individual, flowing in the Spirit of God as you are as like the Sea of Galilee takes in, but then it gives right back out. It is a continual giver and, 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 and taker. It takes and it gives. It takes and it gives. And that's the way God views the local church. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit literally plants us in a local fellowship. Everybody say planted. Now, I want you to get this because, listen, when you, when you become part of a church, it, it's not to be a good idea. It's to be a God idea. It's to be God's idea for you. We should never casually or flippantly become a part of a church because the Bible says that the Holy Ghost literally plants us in a local fellowship, not only to meet our spiritual needs, but also so that we can strengthen that house by ministering to one another their food in due season. So when God looks at a local church, he doesn't just see one minister up on stage behind a pulpit. He sees a whole congregation full of ministers who are called to minister to one another, that when blessing goes in, blessing goes right back out. We receive, we give. We receive, we give. We receive, we give. So I'm alive like the Sea of Galilee, and I'm not dead like the Dead Sea. We, we are all gifted. And the Holy Ghost wants to plant us in a church where we put down roots. This is my home. This is my family. This is where the Holy Spirit has planted me. I am committed. I'm going to be loyal here. I'm going to stick here. This is my home. This is where God has called me to be fed and to also feed others. 
He plants us. I want you to listen to the next two verses about how the Holy Spirit plants us in a church, then uses us to bless and strengthen that same church. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. But our bodies have many parts. Now, he's comparing the body of Christ to a human body. And he says, our bodies have many parts. Hands, feet, eyes, ears, mouth. And God has put each part just where he wants it. Do you hear that? He said, listen, look what God does. God says, oh, no, look down there. John gave his heart to my son. So what I'm going to do with John or Judy or Jill or Susie, any child of God, I'm now going to lead them to a church and plant them in that church. I'm going to plant them where I want them to be. So becoming part of a local church is a God thing. It's a God thing. He plants you. You come into a church and you go, wow, I feel right here. I feel at home here. I'm getting fed here. I, I witness to this place. I, this feels right for me. You know what's happening right there? God the Holy Ghost is planting you. He's planting you. He wants the roots to go down, and as goes the roots, so goes the fruit. As soon as you're rooted and grounded in a place, then you begin to bear fruit in that place. But now watch this. Paul then says, so here's what I want you to do. That's the planting part. God puts us in a local church right where he wants us. That's the planting part. But now Paul says, so here's what I want you to do. When you gather for worship, each one of you be prepared. I'm going to read that again, lest it go past us. When you gather for worship, which we have just done, each one of you be prepared with something that'll be useful for all. Now, I I think I'm reading it right. It doesn't say here, let the preacher be prepared, does it? It says, each one of you, turn to your neighbor and say, I think that means you. Each one of you. Now, now here's the way the Holy Ghost intends for church to go. This is what Jesus had in mind for local church. Let each one of you be prepared with something useful. Now, here he goes. He's giving some examples. Sing a hymn, teach a lesson, tell a story, lead a prayer, provide an insight. Do you notice here, folks? That's the feeding part. The planting part, he puts you right where he wants you to be. But once you are where he wants you to be, he says, now when you come together and gather together for worship, I want you to bring something with you. See, how many times have you ever heard a message on how to get ready for church? I'm not talking about how to get up and get dressed. We all know that. But do do you see what I see? Each one of you be prepared. So here's the way we usually come to a church service. I've got an empty cup here. We come to a church service like this, and you look at me and you say, preacher, you better preach me up. Because here's my cup. I lift it up. (laughs) I've had a rough week. I fought the devil. I've dealt with the flesh. Man, I've had some discouraging things happen to me. So those singers better sing me up and you better preach me up and we come with an empty cup. Right? And and, and that's the way we usually come and join a church. We come to a church and say, wow, you know, I'm looking for a place to be fed. I'm looking for a place that will fill my cup. I'm looking for a place that will take care of my needs. Because here's my cup. I lift it up. And we say, that's all that church is about. But look at what Paul is saying. He's saying, also, when you come together, bring a gift. Bring your gift with you, because all of you have a gift. When you come together, when you come together, he says, be prepared. 
Be prepared. You get up, you get in your car, you're driving to church. We ought to think at least for a second. Now, when I get there, what am I bringing? Because I've got a gift, and I'm going to open up my gift because that's part of the way God sees church. It's not all on the man behind the pulpit. We are supposed to be feeding one another. That's the task we've been left by Jesus until he returns. So we're to feed one another. So I come to church this way. I come with one hand. I've got an empty cup. And, and, you have, and it's totally okay that you should expect your church to feed you spiritually. But that's not all you bring. You also bring your gift. He said, each of you, each of you, every one of you, be prepared with something useful for all. Wouldn't it be a trip if I said, I want everybody to stand up and turn to your neighbor and sing a hymn to them. I'd lose half my church overnight. But he says, sing a hymn, teach a lesson, tell a story, lead a prayer, provide an insight. I could go on, encourage one another, pray with somebody, tell them they've been on your mind, lift them up, edify them, build them up, release your gift. When you come to the church where God has planted you, you're you're to come not just to be fed, but with something to contribute. But since most Christians don't understand God's plan for the local church, they're not planted anywhere. They wake up and they say, where where do you want to eat today? They go from church to church like bees fly from flower to flower, and they never make any one church their home because they're not submitted to any local church. We used to call them cruise-matics. They cruise here, they cruise there. But church is supposed to be a place where we're planted. Can you say the word planted with me one more time? Planted. Planted. It's a family where you're planted. The Bible has a promise for those who allow the Holy Spirit to plant them. Listen to this. Those that are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. The word flourish is powerful. When you are planted in the house of the Lord, you grow spectacularly. You flourish in the courts of our God. And once we're planted in a local church, we're called to minister to one another out of the spiritual gifting that God has given us. Now, let me show you for a fact that every one of you, when you got saved, here's what God did. I'm God, just for a second, pretend I'm God. And and here you are, and you say, God, forgive me. I believe in Jesus. Come into my heart. Wash my sins away. I place my trust and faith in Christ. God goes, wonderful, welcome to the family, here. And he gifts you with a spiritual gift. And last time I looked, the only good gift is an open gift. Amen? Now, listen to what Peter tells us about every single believer. Peter writes, God has given each of you. There's another one of those each of you's. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve yourself. Oops, I read that wrong. What does it say? Use them well to serve, feed one another in due season. It goes right back to the parable. Now look what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He said a spiritual gift is given to each of us. There's another each. Each of us. Every one of us. Each of you. So that we can help each other. So God gave each of us a gift. A spiritual gift. And like I said, the only good gift is an open gift. We're to come to church and open it and encourage one another, pray for one another, bless one another, 
prophesy, teach, preach, whatever it is, whatever your gift is. We're to open it up when we come to local church and bless one another. That's why we have local church. That's why it's better than watching an image on a screen. Because an image on a screen can't encourage you beyond the message they're preaching. An image on a screen is an image on a screen. They can't shake your hand. They can't listen to your problems. They can't pray with you individually. So we come to church and we say, wow, I'm prepared. When I get to the house of God, I'm prepared to open up my gift and I'm going to bless somebody. I'm going to bless somebody. And can I just drop this on you? I believe when that starts happening, you can't stop the growth. Paul says, under his, that is Jesus' direction, the whole body is fitted together perfectly and each part, there's another each, each part in its own special way helps the other parts. So the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Look what happens when everybody starts blessing everybody else, encouraging, edifying each other. He says, it's going to grow, it's going to be full of love, and it's going to be healthy. Each part, both people on either side of you and you, each part has a special contribution to make. Every member is a 10 in some area. You've all got a gift, all of you. You say, well, Jeff, I don't feel very gifted. It doesn't matter what you feel. Let God be true and every feeling a liar. Amen? You've got a gift. You've got a gift. And Paul says, you cannot say to any other member in the body of Christ, I don't need you. There are many members, yet one body, he says to the Corinthian church. And the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Nor again the head to the feet, I don't need you. And some of the parts that seem weakest and least important are really the most necessary. He's letting us know we all need one another. We all, and if one person fails to release their gift, it affects the whole body. Have you ever noticed your little toe can hurt and your whole body pays attention? That little toe may not seem very important at all, covered up by shoes. You know, it's just a little toe. But if that little toe is really hurting, you can't think about anything else. You're limping. It's affecting the whole body. And that's what he's telling us. I need you and you need me and we all need one another. And that's why we're to one another, one another. And we're not to look at anybody as less important than us. Everybody has value. Now, I want you to listen to just a few verses about one anothering one another. Listen to this. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. When you come to church, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. First Thessalonians. Hebrews, I love this one. Encourage one another daily, every day, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews said. Let us consider how to stir up one another. That means stir up the zeal in somebody else. You know, they're dragging into church. They've had a hard week. Somebody has betrayed them. They've lost a job. Their kids have gone off crazy. They, they, they've got some great need. They come dragging into church. Last thing they feel is zeal. The last thing they feel is in the mood to worship God. And it says that's when you step in and you stir them up. Yeah. Yeah. To love and good works. 
not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One more, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. Listen to these words, encourage one another, stir up one another, admonish one another. One another, one another. And that's the call until I come back and take over the house. I'm leaving you in charge and I'm tasking you. Feed one another in due season. This is how the New Testament paints the local church. Not just as consumers to be fed, but contributors to bless. Amen. Now, I want you to notice how right in the middle of this powerful parable, he's told them, I'm leaving, I've left you in charge, I've given you a task, and then right in the middle of a great parable, he he dives into talking about this one servant who has a thought. He says, but if that evil servant says in his heart, my master delays his coming. Now, look at me, folks. Listen to this. I'm going to count it. One, two, three, five words. A five-word thought changed his whole life. Boy, thoughts are powerful. That's why Philippians 4, 8 says, whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, think on these things. Because look what one thought did. One thought. He says, you know what? I don't know about this master coming back. He's been gone so long, I don't think he's coming back. And you know, the Bible predicts that there will be a whole generation that has this thought. That in the last days before the return of Christ, Peter writes, he says, scoffers will come in the last days. And they will ask this question, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, everything is continuing just as it's always been. In other words, it's the same old, same old, same old cycle of life. We don't see anything different. And so scoffers will come in the generation preceding the return of Christ, and they will say, my master delays his coming. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? And Jesus is warning his true people to never go there. One thought changes his whole life. My Lord delays his coming. And as soon as he decides the master isn't returning anytime soon, I want you to notice the effect it has on him. First, instead of feeding the household, he loses his feeling. For the household. Jesus said he begins to beat his fellow servants. He begins to abuse the people of God. I want you to notice what happened here. What Jesus is telling us is he sours on the church. This person who says, ah, you know, uh, my Lord delays his coming. I'm not sure he's coming back. I- I'm really not going to live in a way that I expect him to come back. And it immediately affects the way he views the members of the household, which is the church. Instead of feeding them, he loses his feeling for them. He goes sour on the church. He ceases walking in love and develops a cynical and a critical attitude towards God's people. And I've seen it happen many times. Look how it matters whether or not you're expecting his returning. But once he loses his feeling for God's people, and once he's entertaining this thought, it affects his lifestyle. He quits hanging with the right people, and he starts hanging with the wrong people, backsliding into a sinful lifestyle. Jesus said he begins to eat and drink with the drunkards. He was running with God's people. 
He was running with the righteous. He was running with people who sharpened his faith. He was running with people who had the same faith, and they sharpened one another. But as soon as he said, you know, my Lord delays his coming, then he began to change. I don't like the church anymore. I don't like church people anymore. They're all a bunch of hypocrites. We've all heard that. I say, yeah, we got some hypocrisy. Come and join us. Nobody's perfect. But he, he said, you know, they're all hypocrites. The church isn't real. I'm just going to go out in the world. He went out in the world, and he begins to run with the wrong kind of people. Now, I didn't want to go into this much, and I'm not going to tarry here long, but I want you to notice how much it, how much it is a thermostat of where you are spiritually as to who you run with. Because as soon as he pulled away from God, he pulled towards the wrong kind of people. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm going to hang around with people that sharpen my faith. I'm going to hang around with people... I can't, I can't afford with what I do to be about around a bunch of, you know what a VDP is? A very draining person. I'm talking about people that they don't believe Jesus is coming back. They don't believe in the word of God. They don't believe in the blood of Jesus. They're just out there. Now, I talk to worldly people all the time, but I don't run with them. I don't pull them in tight. I don't, they don't get into my inner circle because I need people who will inject faith and inject hope, and inject encouragement, and who will help me walk that, 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 that narrow path that leads to life. But this man, he says, I'm out of the house, and I'm away from the people, and now I'm running with worldly people. And Jesus said, then the master comes home. And this guy is caught off guard. Clearly, Jesus is pointing to how important it is that his people have an expectation of his return. He could come back any time. I have a dream that I'm going to be preaching when he comes. And I'll be doing this to you, and all of a sudden, I'll be looking at him. But, but I want you to catch it now. Jesus is telling us in this parable, we're to maintain an ever-ready ready faith. We're to maintain an ever-ready faith. Let me read one verse from John and we're done. John tells us the power of having an expectation of his return. He says, dear friends, we're already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him for we will see him as he really is. Now look at verse 3. All who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure. Did you catch that? If you've got an expectation of his return, it, it, it is the incentive to keep your life clean and pure because he could come at any moment. Amen. Let's stand together, can we? How many of you believe he's coming back? Amen. Yes, he is. So here's the sum of this parable. While the master is gone, we're to be a blessing to one another, feeding one another out of our gifting in due season. And we're to keep an ever-ready expectation of his return. Can we just go to the Lord in praise and in worship? Let's thank the Lord for his word. Lord, we thank you for this parable, encouraging us to have ever-ready faith to be ever ready. 
Lord, we do anticipate your return. You said you would return. The return of Christ is imminent. And Lord, we place our eyes on you and we pray as a church body. I pray as the under-shepherd of this church. I pray for all of us and myself included that when you return, you will find us feeding one another, blessing one another, ministering to one another, helping one another. And you will find us eagerly awaiting your return. In the name of Jesus.